The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Going Global, a business's boring pop-up series brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. NZTE wants to help more Kiwi businesses reach their global potential. Visit getthere.nz to find out more. And now, here are your hosts, Brianne West and Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to our special pop-up series, Going Global, where we meet some of Aotearoa's most successful and inspiring exporters to find out the secrets to their success and bust some myths along the way. I've been talking to exporters for the last five years, including my co-host for today, Brianne West, who you will know as the founder and CEO at Atik, who are the global leader in the concentrated beauty bar space. They have stopped more than 20 million plastic bottles from being made, among a whole lot of other cool stuff. Thanks for being here, Brienne. What are we up to with this series? Thanks for having me. Well, Aotearoa is a long way from anywhere else, and we're a small market. So if we and our companies want to grow, we need to sell to the world. But something interesting we have seen is that not all companies selling to the world are identifying as exporters, and that while business in Aotearoa is now looking a lot more like the face of New Zealand, Exporting is still skewing towards that older, more traditional style of business. You know, older, more male, and more likely to be the primary products like meat and milk. So the questions we want to answer are, why aren't more of these amazing, incredible, innovative businesses we are creating, why aren't they exporting? Why don't the people who are exporting think that they are? And how can we change this? We are speaking to six great exporters over six weeks to find this out and more. Our guest today is Laura Bell who is exporting to the world with her company, SafeStack Academy. They help developers and companies everywhere gain the skills to build high-quality, secure software at speed. It's a perfect example of great export thinking, turning what was once a consulting business into programs that can help people at scale and anywhere and as a weightless export that is so cool. So, welcome to Laura Bell Tanakwe. Thank you for being here to share your story and your export journey. Kia ora, and thanks for having me. Um, this is a, a real privilege to be with you lot. You know, I feel like I'm sitting with grown-ups. So, yeah, this will be fun. Well, well, I, I don't really feel like a grown-up, but the privilege <laughs> is, is all mine. Thank you. Um, yeah. Agreed. Don't ever feel like a grown-up. Fabulous. See, life lessons, we're only like two minutes in. <laughs> Easy. Uh, this is always the worst question, I reckon, but how did you get started? Give us a brief rundown of the journey with SafeStack. Uh, sure. Um, so SafeStack started out as a consultancy uh, about seven years ago. And I'd love to say that that was, you know, some big mastermind business plan. It wasn't. I rage quit a job. I uh, had a 10-month-old daughter <laughs> and I needed to earn money. And so I was brave or visionary or stupid, whichever version of the story you want to hear. And I was like, well, the way we do security sucks. Um, We go really, really fast when we build companies, when we build software. But security at that point in time was going at a glacial rate. And I was like, you know, screw it. I can do this differently. And so that's what I did. I grew a consultancy that ended up going around the world, helping high growth companies change the way we did security so that instead of it getting in the way, it was there to help them sell more, to innovate and to grow. Um, And then COVID hit. Um, And like lots of businesses, for lots of different reasons, we dropped 94% of our revenue overnight, as you do. 
So there, there were four of us at that point. Uh, all of us had kids and home loans and pot plants and all the things you have to look after in your life. And uh, so we were like, well, we can roll over and play dead and hope that consultancy comes back. Or actually, we've been doing this stuff now for a long time. Can we turn this into something that doesn't need us? Can we build something that we can help hundreds or thousands of teams all around the world go fast and build software securely, but without us being there? So in, that was the April in 2020. Uh, lockdown fun commenced and we launched into market in the July um, and then our main product finally reached market in the October of that year. So a um, bit of a, a whirlwind adventure, uh, but a lot of fun. And to be honest, I feel like I'm doing exactly what I should be doing right now. So that's cool. And what exactly is security? To ask? Like a really <laughs> dumb question. Because like, it's, it's like, you know, it's a term that means something um, in, in, in some senses, but in software and in building companies and stuff, what does that touch? Well, you know, you'll hear a lot more professional definitions of this. But for me, security is about understanding human nature. From the time we were cave people and, you know, you're in cave one, you're in cave two, you've got something the other cave wants. We didn't just negotiate, make friends and trade. We bashed each other with sticks and rocks and stole the thing from each other. Security has existed as long as other humans have wanted something from someone else. And we've always employed the technologies of the time to get hold of that, whether that's breaking a window and stealing something from a room, or in the modern sense, using technology to try and digitally break into other places and steal what has meaning. So security for me is about understanding that that human nature is not going to change. There will always be people motivated to get something that isn't theirs. And that could be access to things. It could be physical things. It could be money. It could just be to prove that they have the biggest skill set or, you know, to prove that they're the best and kind of stoke that ego. Um, so security is about kind of preventing those as much as we can, understanding the impact when they do happen and preparing so that, even when bad things happen, we can stand up again quickly, dust ourselves off and get back to business. And in a business sense, like when people are building software, I imagine like to be really secure, you've got to think of everything that could go wrong. <laughs> but when you're moving really fast, you don't want to be stopping and thinking of everything. How do you help businesses walk that line? It, it's tricky, and especially in younger companies, because you know it's the unpopular opinion, but security is important but it's not the most important. It's not the scariest monster to a young company. There are 42 other things that are going to kill your company before security does, and one of them is payroll. So in that context, you can't just walk into a room and say, hey, the world is evil, your baby is ugly, you should feel bad, let's fix this. <laughs> you have to kind of come together with them and go, all right, so I need you to pretend for a second that you could press every single button on that screen, what would happen? And almost everyone will look at me and go, why would you do that? I was like, well, why wouldn't you? It's an instinct you have when you're really young. Security and security mindset isn't about going, the world is evil and I should be scared. It's about freeing yourself up to think creatively about what could go wrong. What changes is the mindset. You know, it doesn't make you a criminal to think about crime. But, you know, all of us have watched a murder mystery at some point and gone, oh, it was totally that person and they did it with this and they did it with that. We love those puzzles. So we're just trying to re-engage that same muscle memory and turn it into a collaborative puzzle that fast-moving companies can try and anticipate so that it doesn't knock them off track later. I'll be honest, this is the first time I've talked about any kind of security and not thought, oh, I'm bored. Because 
it just sounds doing a bit it dry. It, 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 well, it is right, but I'm my hometown from a long time ago, obviously not New Zealand, um, is famous for two things: car theft and teenage pregnancy. And so, when you grow up in that kind of environment, you learn certain things. You learn at Christmas to check presents, to check that they're actually addressed to the right family, and you learn to spot knockoffs. And you, and it's not that my family are bad or that the area was evil or any of those things. It's not a horror story. It's just my environment. And there's people all across New Zealand who've grown up in other places. And so their mental model also includes this other understanding of risk. So what I've been able to do in my career is take what I learned as a child just by the environment I was in and sort of kind of use that and connect with other people and kind of help them to understand how to see the world that way. And that's so cool to have gone from like a consultancy where you're selling your time and your team's time to then building something that's scalable, you can resell the same thing to the world, and also it's a weightless export. Yeah, it it's really exciting. It's terrifying. Like, please don't get me wrong when I say this is a really exciting journey. It is. But in the same way that a roller coaster is terrifying and then it's exciting and you forget about the terrifying afterwards. For us, we're very mission-driven. So being able to connect with, there are 32 million developers in the world right now, give or take. If we can connect to even a fraction of those and give them the skills they need to do security, then we could be protecting quite literally the cathedrals of the future. Literal companies trying to take things to space or to create robot doctors or, and I'm super excited by that. You know, my little company we do great stuff. We're going to help people. It's going to be wonderful. But we're not going to be the company that 200 years people look back at. But the companies that are building, you know, some of the technologies we're seeing emerge right now, they are. And so for me, if we can help them and we can help them build those things safely so that they succeed and they thrive and they help people, then that's a really good way to spend my time. It really is an amazing vision. How exactly does the SafeStack Academy work and what kind of things does it do or do people get from it? Sweet. Well, we have three elements. So we, I'll give you the formal wording and then we'll actually break it down to real English. So we're a community-centric online education pr- platform, which means we have three things. We have courses and qualifications. So you can sign up, you can take courses from beginners through to more advanced, whether you're a developer, a tester, an analyst, an architect, basically anyone who builds software can come along and join in. Um, We have hands-on labs, which are kind of like puzzles for you to get hands-on with. Not surprisingly, our engineering community quite like being hands-on. They're hands-on type of people, so it helps them learn. And finally, and almost most importantly, is our community. So one of the problems in security is you can't just go up to strangers and say, hello, I work for a bank. Here's my list of vulnerabilities. Please help me. That tends to make you more vulnerable, which is sort of avoiding the point. So we've created a space where it's safe to come together and say, hey, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Um, Have you done this before? What have you done? Um, We do that in a way that people can ask questions anonymously, that they can share without exposing who they work for, and that they can come together on a frequent basis wherever they are in the world and connect with other people sharing that same challenge so they don't repeat the same mistakes. That's so good. I love that idea of the anonymous uh, sharing. I imagine it would be a really good place to be a crook, a um, chat room where people talk about all of their, their security patches. You would nearly. not believe. Um, a lot of people, when we say, you have a community, and they're like, oh, so you set up a Slack channel. So, oh, I wish. That, that would be so easy. Um, but no, we have law we have to follow, such as um, there's laws against foreign interference. So you have to, whenever you build a uh, community that's security related, you have to really consider 
people's motivations. Um, and that's really harmful. It's one of the reasons we've been bad at security so long is because we can't work with each other and we can't share our vulnerabilities because we might not actually be able to trust the person we're sharing with. And so we're having to take a step into the, a new kind of space for security and take a bit more of a risk in a calculated way to enable that. Because if we don't take this step and, and make this safe place, we're never going to make any progress. Way back, well, not way back, but a few years ago, pre-COVID, mm. you know, in the other world, you had started exporting into, I think it was 35 countries. Why did you decide to do that initially? I mean, it's an obvious move, but where, when did you make that decision? Can I, can I be really honest? I don't think I ever really did make the decision. <laughs> so our first overseas customer was an absolute accident. Um, I spoke at a conference. I met somebody afterwards. It was lovely. I don't even really remember their name. And then two weeks later, I had an email going, hi, we want to buy. I was like, what? Who, who, what, now, where? And so a lot of our early international traction was via relationships we curated in in that international space that is online, where, you know, you don't think of each other as being from different countries, you're just people who've connected in a space. Um, and so a lot of our early global export stuff was opportunistic or relationship-based. It's only been in the last year, particularly, where we're trying to do that more strategically, that we're having to now go, well, how do we turn what we did by a bit of serendipity into something that is sustainable and repeatable, um, and find the people who don't happen to naturally cross paths with us. So, yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> I, I don't know. Is the honest answer? I don't know. We All I do know is every time that we get to a new stage in the company, like most companies, it's like going back to school. Uh, it's kind of like raising children, to be honest. You get to a stage and you're like, I've got this, I've got it cracked. And then a day passes and you know nothing again. And they are a completely different child. Your business is the same. Um, so for us... What we try and understand is the cultural conventions of the countries we're going into. So we're a very Kiwi company in terms of we are very scrappy. We're a bit ghetto, if you will. We're not afraid of just getting stuck in and just getting on with it. Um, that, you know, helps the fact we don't have much marketing budget. So you kind of have to be a bit more creative in that case. But when we go to, say, for example, markets like the US, they don't understand that at all. You know, they need it to be crisp. They need it to be clean. They need it, you know, they need the words in the right places, the category conventions that they're used to in that market. Um, so we're spending quite a bit of time trying to understand where we can push those category conventions and just say, no, nah, no, we don't need to do that. And which ones actually are really important. And I think that takes a lot longer than I anticipated to start with. It was something I thought would be super easy, but wasn't. You, at the beginning of this conversation, you so beautifully articulated your mission and the reason behind why you're doing what you're doing, which I personally believe is critical for all businesses. How did you get to that point where you could simply roll that off your tongue? And is it the same throughout with all your team members? Um, two very different questions. Um, so I'll, I'll break them down. So with my team, yes, I would say so. Uh, the 17 of us. So it's still quite relatively easy uh, for us to kind of keep a shared sense of mission and purpose. And we have some really great cultural practices around understanding why we're doing things. So that, that's good. Um, for me, though, actually, my background helps me with that. So way, way back, way before the consultancy, um, I used to be a software developer um, and I worked for the UK government in counterterrorism and counter online harm. And so when you're doing that sort of work, you know, your primary focus is keeping people safe and reducing harm. And, and you know, 
you are part of a, a large team, but you're all very singularly focused on an objective. And so a lot of my formative career years were in those sort of places. So when I came out and I, I still meet with investors today and they're like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and they expect me to say, oh, I'd like to be a bazillionaire, please. And I'd like to own Rio. Um, <laughs> and that's not true. Um, my idea of wealthy is I have a roof over my head and food on the table. But my goal is to change the world. Um, but it's not the money might happen, but that's not the why. The why is why I get out of bed in the morning. And that's to really I, I want people like me to be redundant. There shouldn't need to be people like me whose job is to think about the worst thing that could happen to your company and then show you in a way that, you know, doesn't harm you. We should all be able to do that ourselves. So that's sort of where it comes from, I guess. Education like that and that purpose and the, the thought leadership is something that's also really in common with the way that you run your business, Brianne. Like, was that ever kind of like... You know, and you mentioned before at conferences, people came up afterwards. Was it ever, has it become a strategy or is it something that's just really natural to the business? Um, I think it has become a strategy now. I first did my first conference talk about 11 years ago. and I was really green in New Zealand. I said the phrase, trust me, 43 times in one talk. Um, I know because somebody kindly counted for me. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, hello, stranger. Here, I counted your words. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Great days, great times. I used to be really afraid of authentically being me as a business person. I used to look around me and see other businesses and go, well, they look very businessy. I should be more like that. Um, and I wasted a lot of energy doing that. But I actually realized I am a combination of a family of engineers with a family of particularly women who are just natural storytellers and connectors. And so by embracing who I actually am under it, Telling stories, connecting with audiences, connecting with communities is one of the things that I'm best at in the world and I enjoy the most. And it's a really powerful tool for what my business needs to do. So it's a good fit. Everything you have said just sounds like, I feel like it's something I would say. You're absolutely right. I was almost afraid of being who I was and because I'm quite idealistic and I'm not going to go into it, but a lot of people think some of my ideas might be a little bit off the wall. That's fine. And I've always been worried about embracing that in the business world because I can't tell you how many times I've been told, when are you going to do business the grown-up way? Or you can't do that every time. It's worked out fine. Touch wood. But it is hard to be authentically you if you're a little bit, if you think a little bit differently to the, the old school business wisdom. And one of, the, one of the topics that's come up quite a lot with conversations I've had with business people around the world is particularly when you're exporting, it's really important that you're having conversations in person mm. with distributors, partners, people on the ground, people who are going to buy your product, right? Is it true of a digital product? I actually probably don't know because we decided to launch a digital product in the middle of a pandemic. So we didn't get to do that bit. We had to make do with what we had, which was a lot of Zoom calls. Mm. I think there's an element of connection that is richer, quicker when you're in person, when you can read the body language, when you can see the, the look in their eyes, look on their face. You know, I had a conversation on Zoom yesterday and I could see just by looking at her that she was super tense. It was nothing to do with me, but you could read it and you can read that quicker. And I think that we've all got so polished on Zoom now, it's quite easy to kind of miss those cues. Um, but I would say that if we always relied on being in person, it would exclude an entire bunch of people from going out and doing business. I have a three-year-old and a nine-year-old. When I choose to travel, it has to be for the right reason at the right time. Because, you know, I'm choosing at that moment in time that 
that travel is more important than they are. And so I'm not going to be the founder that goes off to America and lives there for two years. That's just not me. And so we're going to make it work without. I think we'll use in person when we can and we'll definitely feel the benefit from that. But I'm never going to see doing it remotely as some kind of second class attempt. Um, we just have to do it differently. I love that. And I love that you think Zoom is polished because never a conversation starts with that. Oh, you're on mute every time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it sounds like with the growth of the company so far and the um, the funding raise and, you know, the things going on, that that approach is really working out. It, it seems so. We managed to close our first funding round having never met any of our investors in person. In fact, two of the organisations who invested us had never invested in a company without meeting them face-to-face and had previously said they never would do that. Um, I still haven't met one of them in person. We're finally getting dinner in about a month's time, fingers crossed. So, yeah, I I think it's going well, but I think it comes back to this kind of being who you are as a company and as a leader Um, because if I was trying to follow the tried and true the playbooks for this, none of this is in the playbook. Um, you know, you read Secrets of Sand Hill Road or any of the, you know, go-to books on angel investing and things. And yeah, pretty much you c- I've broken every rule that they've said that you should do. So I don't know. Uh, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Is it look? We will find out. Uh-huh. I love it. And, and, and can't wait to see you break more rules. And coming up, we're going to be back in a second to talk about what it means to be an exporter and get some insight into the most important things to know if you're thinking about going global. We said earlier that exporting looks a lot more like the old traditional New Zealand business. What does that mean, Brian? I mean, it's bananas that women are seriously underrepresented when it comes to export. Around 28% of our goods companies in Aotearoa are led by women. But when we look at goods exporters, that number drops to 15%. What could it do for New Zealand if all of the cool, or even just more of the cool woman-led companies in this country did get to exporting. Just imagine, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise wants to support more people to reach their global potential. So if you're a woman in business and this corridor has got you thinking about what you have to offer beyond our borders, get in touch with NZTE. To find out how they can help you get there, head to getthere.nz forward slash woman. Welcome back. We're here with Laura Bell discussing exporting, which is really important for New Zealand. But an interesting fact we've come across is that not everyone who's selling things overseas considers themselves an exporter and so isn't getting all the help that they could to grow. Have you always considered yourself an exporter or what do you think of the term and idea of being an exporter? I'll I'll be completely honest. The word exporter for me is not one that was very natural in my circles. Like for me, an exporter, when I first started thinking about it, is, you know, it's a main freight. It's a company that puts a thing in a box and puts it somewhere on ocean. It gets to somewhere else. It was physical products. You know, it took a little bit of rethinking on my part to realize that actually anything that was going overseas was export. Now, I think for digital companies like mine, it's probably because we operate internationally just by default. So we, you know, yes, people turn up at my door and they happen to be from Andorra or Australia or New Zealand, but it makes no difference to us. You know, in terms of the experience, once they found us, is very similar. 
And I think much like when we talk about entering new markets uh, and connecting with our audience there, and there are category conventions and language conventions we're expected to follow, there are language expectations in both the support space and the export space, in, in trade and enterprise in general, that they're only familiar if you have been there before. And so you don't always know the language you need to speak to get help. So part of embracing being an exporter for me was less about saying, oh, right, exporters look like different things. It was about going, okay, so export is what we do, and that means this in this community, and that means that there's these things that we can do. And so it was about mapping my world to someone else's um, via a language. It's a really nice way of looking at it. A lot of people do sort of bulk at the idea of being or calling themselves an exporter because they almost don't feel worthy. And you're right. The natural thing that comes to mind when I think of an exporter anyway is someone who puts a box, a product in a box and ships it offshore. You're dead right. So it's interesting. Are there any other preconceived notions you have about export or had? (sighs) Uh, I, I think I might just say tax with a big, heavy emphasis on tax um, uh, and the whole thing being painful. Uh, I think for for us, because we're digital, you know, in some ways it's a little bit easier when you're selling a physical thing, or at least that's my naivety of never having run a product company, so sorry. You send it overseas and then, you know, somebody buys it off a shelf and the tax system around that is very well established. It's been there for a long, long, long time. But when you're an exporter and you're digital, understanding when and where global rules apply to you is so hard. And, you know, there's thresholds for this and there's jurisdictions for that and the state by state things in the US. And it's very easy to kind of look at that and go, oh, wow, that is overwhelming and really quite impenetrable in terms of understanding where to begin. So for me, that's the area that I would say causes the most reluctance to begin with and still causes challenges now. That is a very fair point. I remember sitting down with a team, I think it was from Deloitte four or 500 years ago, and uh, by the end of the hour and a half conversation, we were just talking about US tax and that nightmare. I think I was actually sweating. It was horrific. So navigating that as an online uh, digital product would, mm, No. <laughs> yeah, especially as your customers are opportunistic a lot of the time. You know, we're we're marketing-led, not um, we don't have salespeople knocking on doors because software developers, well, they don't answer the phone and they don't like cold emails. So coming up and saying, buy my thing to a stranger is, is basically going to get the opposite of reaction. So when they come to us, they can come from anywhere. So we inherit tax liability the second they come to our door and give us money. So what do you do? Do you turn off your channels to market and say, well, we're only selling to New Zealand, Australia right now, and we'll do more when we can figure it out? Or do you do it on the fly? Now, we're using Stripe, which helps a bit, but we're trying to be dynamic because we don't want to miss the momentum by saying, hey, no, we're not ready for you right now. Um, So, yeah, it's tricky as a balance. And I imagine that, you know, working out the compliance and regulatory framework for one payment pretty quickly knocks off any margin that you've got. Mm, Absolutely. There there is a a slight customer acquisition cost problem there. Um, That's where you need to get lots and lots of them. So yeah, you know, come tell your friends, etc. <laughs> and in terms of that, um, you know, like you were saying, learning how to map, you, you know, the export framework to your experience. How have you done that? Like, what help and support have you um, got and worked with in order to kind of be able to do that? Yeah, I. The one thing that I am proud that I've been able to do as a founder is admit I have absolutely no idea what I am doing with some of these elements of the business. And that's, uh, it's an honest truth. There's no 
kind of humor in it, really. And that frees me because it means I don't have to pretend. Um, and what I do is I go, right, okay, there is a gap here. I can read lots of blog posts. I can read a book, but that's not going to make me a tax accountant. So I find good people around me. So we work with a, a great tax advisory group. Um, we are participating in the Springboard Global Expansion Program, which gives us access to mentors from around the world who've done this before and other founders as a lot of sharing lessons learned. Uh, we've worked with NZTE um, for a, a number of reasons to help understand markets better and at least understand where the gaps are. So for me, it's all about understanding the business is changing, the help I need changes, and finding those right people and right groups at the right time to support that. It's a common theme that as a founder, CEO, however you term yourself, you should be the stupidest person in the room at any one time and you should surround yourself with people who are very clever and a tax accountant is a perfect example. So when you have, and I know it's been quite passive, but have you found servicing beyond the tax implications, servicing all these different markets who I should imagine are, are actually champing at the bit to get your product, how have you been able to service the ones you do service and how do you prioritise the ones that you want to do? Yeah, Um so we've prioritized, uh, so we, we have two kind of parts of the business. We have the ability to serve anyone from anywhere. So we built the whole thing to be self-service. And that's part of the idea for us that security shouldn't be ridiculously expensive and it should be something that is inclusive of all companies all around the world, no matter where they are. So we've got companies that work with us who are teensy, tiny, little two-person organizations, and we've got people who are thousands. And so... These small ones can come in from wherever they are and they can make themselves at home. And then they tend to grow by network effect. So they they will tell their friends and we'll support them in doing that. And, you know, we just try and give our time and knowledge and they seem to, you know, they like connecting. Most humans do. They want to hear a story. They want to see someone like them and they want to feel heard. For In terms of markets, we, we're a cliche in that we're going after the U.S. market at the moment. That's our expansion strategy for this year. But only in terms of growing brand awareness. So US companies are, while we read a lot about the big unicorns, so you know, the Netflix and the Silicon Valley darlings, they're less than 2% of the companies over there. And they, they're not our target. I mean, don't get me wrong, if one of them wanted to give me a lot of money, I'm not going to say no. Uh, but we're not going after them. What we're trying to do is understand all of these other states outside of California and find the communities that exist just like they do in Auckland and they do in Christchurch and growing up in Whangarei. It's about finding those little companies and connecting and hearing them and listening to their problems and sharing what we've seen in other organizations and connecting them with others. Um, when it comes to how we do this, it's evolving. It, it's a lot of trial and error because everything's marketing now. And so nobody trusts each other. It takes quite a long time to get a genuine connection with an organization. And so we, we estimate we need about eight touch points with a group for them to even just have a conversation with us. So they need to have seen us around the place in a number of places. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, at the moment, just giving our time, giving our energy and, and connecting that way. That's a lot of work before someone starts paying a bill as well. Hey, like, tell us about the way that you've, because you've got, you know, uh, some amazing backers uh, for the, the vision. Like, did you as a group get it together and then go out to seek investment once you had your product ready to go? Or at what stage did you start getting in that capital to help you take it global? 
Um, we were bootstrapped for the first year. Um, we still did some consultancy work around the edges. Myself, my COO, Erica, she's um, off having a baby at the moment and having a wonderful time. Um, but we both kind of ran two jobs. So we were the virtual security officers for high growth companies in the day and product company in the night and every other moment. Um, but that's not sustainable. Um, we got to our first quarter of a million dollars in revenue in the first seven months, six, seven months. And that's annual recurring revenue for the product. And we realized at that point there was no way we were going to be able to keep up if we were just running ourselves ragged on two jobs. Um, so at that point, we did an accelerator called SciRise out of Australia, which is specialist to cybersecurity. And we went looking for investment. Um, and the idea being that we wanted to have proven that we had something worth um, backing and we wanted to prove the story. Um, but uh, we needed to get that investment then to, to really make the most of that momentum. Um, I don't take taking investment lightly. Um, for me, it was a very hard decision to make as a founder to take it because, you know, there's a stubborn part of me that built a company. You know, there's and half your audience are going to despair at me for saying this out loud. There's a little tiny voice that says taking investment is failure. Um, if you have that little voice, ignore that little voice. It's wrong. Um, but you have to unpick all of that. Um, and so, yeah, we we started pitching for investment on the 14th of April, uh, 2021, and we finally closed. I think we had the term sheets three months later, but closed in the October. Um, but it was all about finding investors who understood the vision and not just the, you know, the potential revenue stream that it was. Because without the vision, you don't understand the buyer. Our buyer is not a security person sat there going, hey, security is fun, you should do this thing. We have to connect with and convince every software developer we meet. And software developers require authenticity and experience and empathy. And so it has to be a very genuine sale. Um, so yeah, uh, we were really lucky to find such a great group of investors who understood that. Capital raising is fraught with danger. And I find it really interesting that you saw it as a failure. I can see why you would think that. Um, but I mean, startups are crazy money hungry, right? Mm. Is there anything you would have wished you had known going into that raise or perhaps even going into exporting in general so you would have done a better job because a lot of people fall into various pitfalls with particularly with capital raising oh absolutely so many we could do an entire hour session on that but i'll keep it simple <laughs> um the bits of feedback i get the most even still even though i've been working on them is that i'm too conservative with my targets now, this is a, it's actually, when you start digging into it, really contradictory that they're even saying that to me, because even when we were pitching six months in and we had a quarter of a million dollars of ARR, that was a lot more than most of the companies had at six months. But at the same time, when I was spelling out where that could go, I was being told either I was not being ambitious enough or too ambitious, dependent on the group that I was talking to. And I think it, I found that really hard to deal with to start with. I felt like I was like, well, what's the formula I need to use? You know, how did you calculate this? How do I get my number to be your number? But actually what I learned was I didn't need my number to be their number. I needed my number to be my number and me to shove it in their face so they couldn't ignore it. Um, yep. <laughs> which that's a bit of confidence I didn't naturally have. You know, I'm a security nerd. We're like the most risk-averse people you can meet. It's literally our profession. So going into a room with three made-up numbers and going, hey, give me large sums of money, please, so that I can go and build a rocket ship didn't feel natural to me. So coming to terms with that and actually realizing that they didn't need to agree with me. I need to connect with them and they need to see my vision. 
Um, and if we don't get that, it doesn't matter whether my numbers match their numbers. Because they're not the right partner. No, they're no, not. I, for, for years, I found forecasting so frustrating because, yes, it's either too conservative or it's too high. How are you going to do that? Well, I mean, it's based on a whole lot of assumptions. None of this could happen. I appreciate the importance. But raising money on these hockey stick forecasts you see where at the end of the year, you know, they're just all of a sudden going to do an extra $4 million a month. Yeah. No. Maddening. Uh, absolutely. And it's, you have to sit around a polite table, virtual or otherwise, with, you know, very intelligent people. Everyone in the room is smart. And give them a bunch of made... Oh, be kind. Um, I, I see you. I right? may have made a face. Uh, she may have made a face. Uh-huh. Audience, subtitles, narrator. She did. Um, so you're sitting around a table and you kind of, you really, really want to go, well, this is concrete and I, I have certainty, but you don't. Everything in a forecast is a guess. It's a guess layered on a guess based on some analysis that was made by a guess of somebody else's work, where you can only see half of the picture because nobody talks about the full financial story. They only post the highlights. Now, you have to just kind of learn to put that bit in your brain that's analytical like that, just put it in a small box, give it an iPad and just tell it to watch TV <laughs> for a while. Um, and then, yeah, just play the game because it's it's not about it being perfectly accurate. It's about thinking in a way that you can communicate to them and get them to share the vision. No, you're deep right. I couldn't agree with that more, but I find it really interesting that you said that, Brian, because I heard from um, a person who works for one of the big um, uh, VC companies in New Zealand that Briam is the only company that has ever actually matched its forecast that they ever have had. So uh, that's pretty remarkable. So it's it pretty makes amazing. It, it makes it very true that 99% of the others didn't. That's down to a very conservative, well-thought-out COO again, who I mentioned before. Uh, conservative forecasts are so much more confidence-inspiring, aren't they? Who yeah. are you going to trust? The company, who are you going to invest more money in? Because, you know, one raise is, is great. You're probably going to need to do subsequent raises. Who are you going to trust? The person or the company that hit the forecast or the company that said, actually, we made it up? Yeah, 100%. And also one of the most successful returns that they'd seen. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's blushing, just in case the audience at home aren't, aren't catching that. Yeah, that's so cool. And, um, you know, what things have you learned about some of the other markets that you've been selling to as well? Like, um. You know, you say that there's um, kind of the community online where everyone's the same, but are there different kind of like cultural or sales things that you have to do to sell in other markets that you're finding? I think what's different is the sales pipeline itself. So the the audience, the development teams are largely the same. They they care about the same things. They're the same type of nerd. You know, it, it's cool and I love them dearly. But the organisations they work in are different. So in the US, there's a lot more hierarchy. There's a lot more process. They've got a lot more budgets to play with, but also they have to prove a lot, you know, in a lot more detail of where this is going to fit into a bigger strategy. And it's just because it's a more established, you know, larger population. Um, over in New Zealand, you know, I, I love New Zealand. It's been my home for 11 years. I hope to make it my home forever. But our sales process is absolutely crazy. It is cuckoo bananas. It's essentially, do you happen to know Fred and did you go to school with him? And if you didn't, then you need to make friends with Barbara, whose son goes to hockey with James. And I'm like, what is this? Um, so New Zealand's got its own flair. Australia, again, very different. Um, similarities between New Zealand and Australia, but not quite as friendly with it. So it's, you know, they, they do look at what country you're from, you know, what language have you given. They do have more 
frameworks and sales process. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it is different each time. But I do enjoy finding out because, um, you know, what's what's where's more fun than just kind of looking at something and going, right, okay, how does this one work? And I think that's the engineering me. I want to know how every system works. And as a final thought, what advice would you have for people who are thinking of building something? Like, I love the idea. Imagine if every person who was selling their time was able to uh, make something that gave that value as a scalable thing that could be sold to the world. Like... What advice would you give people to, to, to get started with Going Global? I think a lot of the advice you get given as a founder is quite cliched. You know, follow your passion, do what, you know, keeps you up at night, solve the problem you have. Uh, solve the problem that you would be willing to walk away from your dinner table to solve because you can't get it out of your head is probably what I would say. You know, if it's the type of thing that comes back and again and again and again, you've probably got to do something about it. What I would say, though, is... Remember, the world got a lot smaller with the internet. While there are giant brands out there that are spending a lot, eye-watering amounts of money on marketing to get, you know, to where they want to be, there are equally hundreds and thousands of companies who are actually growing really healthily without that. And it's because the market isn't where we think it is. If you think about, you know, our traditional approach to things, a lot of the marketing that we spend money on is to target the US or Europe, these big established markets. But there are some really rapidly growing markets we hear nothing about, but they're super exciting. If you look at Indonesia, for example, huge population. You've never heard of any of the unicorns from Indonesia in terms of digital companies. You don't need to. They can become multi-billionaires by just selling to their local population. So when you're going out and you're starting your thing, don't feel confined to just selling to the people that you know other people already sell to. Go and find the other people like you around the world. Go and, and connect with those communities, even if it is somewhere you never expected to look. Because going global in a digital company doesn't mean, can I get a ship to there and can I get the box on the doorstep? It means, do they have an internet connection and can we understand each other enough to help each other? And that means looking much further afield than just... Nations that look and sound like we do. Yeah, love it. Hey, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, Laura Bell of SafeStick. Yeah, no worries. It was fun. Thank you. Amazing to talk to you. How fab was Laura? That was that was a, such a, an inspiring conversation. And I, if I'm honest, I didn't I didn't know it would be, but she was so purpose and, and mission driven, and I just didn't expect a tech company to be like that. Yeah, and security and cyber security. You know, it, it isn't what you think is necessarily going to be where all the excitement is. But it really shows, like, you know, if you have a true idea of your customer and the problem and the mission that you're trying to solve in the world, like, everything is exciting. Mm. And she was so unapologetically herself. And that comes through through the whole company. That is why they're successful. As a, as a founder and an entrepreneur, you are just hit with so much advice. And I'm sorry, but a good... 50, 80, 100% of it's rubbish, right? And she just she just built it on her own terms. It's amazing. Yeah. Is that something you saw too? Like people telling you, you know, I imagine if you're doing something like a, um, a shampoo that's a concentrate bar that comes in cardboard in a whole category that's plastic bottles with um, non-concentrate, I imagine people told you stuff had to be one way. Oh, I've been told no more times than I think I've ever been told yes. I've had buyers say good luck building a market for a product like this. I've had a banker stand up when I was doing a, um, a speaking event about our equity crowdfunding raise and he said, when are, when are you going to raise money the grown-up way? Uh, I've had plenty of no's, many more than yeses. 
And I think it's really cool to hear someone like, you know, like, because there's so many people who must also be hearing there's only one way to do it. There's a set rule book. It's just always so cool to hear people who are going, well, that's cool that people are saying that, but I'm going to do it my way and I'm not going to do all the travel in the world and I'm going to uh, do things intentionally and it's working out. Yeah, it is really nice to hear that. Business does not have to look one way. It is what you are taught. Old school business wisdom all looks the same, but business doesn't have to. And she's killing it. So that's really awesome. So yeah, go Laura. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Brienne. Thank you to everyone listening. Uh, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like to Ihey Butler, who's been helping us with production today, do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Inohora. You've been listening to Going Global, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. It was hosted by Brianne West and Simon Pound. It was produced by T.I. Hair Butler with content management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. Special thanks to our partnerships editorial team of Elisa Rivera, Alice Webladall and Simon Day. If you want to know how New Zealand Trade and Enterprise can help you take your business to the world, visit getthere.nz today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.